0: Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at Podcast at gmail.com, or contact us on our Facebook page. Right now, you're hearing my voice. Or did you actually hear it just before now? Just before I pointed it out? When is now? Is now just a snapshot of the world at any arbitrary point? Or does it have duration? Could the whole monologue up to this point be considered now? If it's now here, is it also now everywhere? Have I said now so many times the word has lost any sense of meaning? <laughs> Today we're talking about the present moment.
1: I do enjoy the introduction. I, <laughs> I remember having written one introduction, and that was during the the pandemic and it was it was fun to do but yours just has that that spice <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, that, that trim humor that says we're gonna go at this yeah i i like i like writing
0: them but yeah so we talked about the past last week we're gonna talk about the present moment today and we're gonna talk about the future next week now observant listeners will realize that we have done the present so um if you've listened to that podcast, don't skip this one because Norm and I both listened through that. It was um, about
1: nine months ago.
0: Yeah, hmm. we both listened through that recently, and have um, sort of changed up our questions a little bit to, to break some new ground. Obviously, we're going to incorporate, you know, some of the principles over there, but as always, we're hoping to have complementary conversations as opposed to repeats. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, indeed, and, uh, and part of this, I think. While sometimes we stumble into this because we're interested, and in, let's talk about this this week. And we do our research and notes, and then we realize. But 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 that's a natural thing. When when one of the purposes of our podcast is to say, yeah, there's what to, you can sit together and have a conversation about philosophy and go into deep, deep water, and still laugh and be puzzled and and embrace all that, and also have the humility to realize that in one talk you're not going to cover. Uh, whatever the topic is, but mm. particularly the present.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of things, right? Where you you think about it, we talk about it, and then we don't see each other for a week. And then in that meantime, all the things that we talk about have percolated mm-hmm. new ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And so, really, and that's part of the beauty of philosophy, right? Is it's, it's not like science or math or, you know, history where You can study it and study it and get all the details right and then you know what there is to know and (laughs) and of course that's a very simplistic overblown view of those disciplines as well um but philosophy is even less so right there's it there's always different theories or different syllogisms and things that different ways you can look at it that are new and fresh and so the same topic no matter how many times you talk about it i remember when i was in the army has a big, you know, I was always stand around and wait, right? So you're there for two solid days, but there's nothing to do. Hurry up and wait. That's yeah, what nothing, always nothing to do. So in, inevitably, there was always a group of people standing around. Usually it was the smokers and I didn't smoke, but I'd stand out at the smoking pit with them and we'd be, every month we'd talk about the same things. And it was a lot of this stuff, God, time, you know, like all these things. And uh, it didn't matter how many times you talked about the same thing. There was always new insights, new new ideas. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Um, with that in mind, the first question I'll ask is how do we qualitatively define the present moment?
1: Qualitatively, the present moment is a distinct measure of time. Oops, there it goes. So we've, we've done this before, <laughs> right? Right. But the present moment qualitatively can be expanded by the definitions we decide to apply or to structure a conversation. Historians talk about a present moment, and it may be a number of years. It it may be uh, uh, eras, Uh, and and so we set qualitatively that uh, or quantitatively. Quantitatively, we we set. The distinction the metric how much are we referring to but qualitatively we we then get to talk about are we talking about it spiritually are we talking about it uh, ontologically are we talking about it both are we talking about it historically so okay if we're going to talk about the present moment and we're going to and we say uh, let's call the present moment the past 10 years All right, what about that present moment are we really interested in? Are we interested in philosophy? All right, but then we narrow it down to, are we talking about a society? Are we talking about a specific country, a state, a community, uh, a person in the progression of that person's life, the whole planet? (laughs) Because those things have to be established.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're on some there because uh, if you look at it on orders of scale, right? So cosmology, for instance, right, we're in the stelliferous era. (laughs) <laughs> Which is when you can make stars out of stuff. And so if you were to look at it, you'd say, well, when is the stilliferous era? Well, it's now. It's yeah. the present. But really, it's been that way for billions of years, right? Or, uh, you know, some other things like, uh, scientists have are trying to determine whether we're in the Anthropocene, right? A new epoch in, in the, um, evolution of, of the planet. And so. The Anthropocene is from blank years, maybe eighteen eighty to the present, mm-hmm. or nineteen fifty to the present. So that the present, right, is again incorporating decades now. So these are on large scales, um, and of course you can you can lower the scale, and we can lower it all the way down to um, the span a human lifespan. And so you'd think in the, the smaller the scale, the more focused the conception of now would be. Um, but I still think that there's something to what you're saying where it depends on what you're focusing on, right? Like when I fill out a resume, yeah. I'd say that, where do you work? Okay, well, I work here now, but I've worked here for the past 10 years. So that is a little, a, a miniature epoch, right, mm-hmm. in my life. But 10 years as a there's a good chance that's that's over ten percent of my life, so it's a huge chunk. You know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't normally think of that as being the present or now, um, right. but it's since we're focusing on a certain thing, continuity in a certain respect, we can sort of justify using the language at least.
1: Yes, we can. I I, I absolutely think so. And and if we think about visualizations of uh, what you just talked about, in essence, could be either a circle and a larger circle, a larger circle or a Venn diagram. But I also think I've been been having some wildly uh, interesting to me thoughts this week because of all the different things I've been reading. And and, you know, it's, it's not going to be nearly as wild a thought as I thought it was at midnight when I came to it a couple of nights ago. And we'll get to that. But to me, a representation of that would be the idea of the tesseract, which one can go to and look up tesseract animation. You can see it on on, on the web. A representation of the fourth dimension, really. Hmm. But you will see a, a moving, a turning figure that goes from a square to a rectangle to a trapezoid to something uh, indescribable in common terms. Shifting, constantly shifting. And I, and I think that that's what... Um, uh, or even when we try to narrow it to a 10-year uh, or a one-hour span of, of life, there's still all of these gloopy, moving parts about what we mean when we say moment or now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll we'll get into the, the nitty-gritty of it for sure. Um, but yeah, qualitatively, I, I think it's important not to lose sight of that because… As much as we like talking about the abstract and we like picking apart the the mysteries of the universe mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. Um, one of those mysteries of the universe is our commonplace everyday experience of what is happening now to us right yes, yeah. so we talked last week about philosophical views on time yeah are there any theological views worth mentioning <sighs> uh,
1: that's an interesting question Joel because I often do not uh untangle the idea of theology and and philosophy. I think they're bound up together although theology has a very specific uh narrative apologetic intent. uh sometimes to explain the world in terms of a sacred text. Uh, but that being said, I think that, that uh, for instance, if we go back to uh, St. Augustine, uh, we talk, we've talked about Augustine many times, and there was one that I, uh, I was going back through notes and going back through some readings, and I found something we hadn't mentioned before. Uh, Augustine said, the time present of things past is memory. Hmm. He, was, he was talking uh, not a uh, sacred text, but he was talking beyond it, theologically. The time present of things present is direct experience. The time present of things future is expectation. So if you boil that to, all right, so we're talking about memory, experience, and expectation. And then he takes that and works it into discussing his own life and works it into discussing what what we learn from uh, sacred text. But I think it's an interesting view. So in our discussion today, the time present of things present is direct experience. Hmm. So we uh, think of direct experience when we're saying, well, we're talking about the present moment. Then we are all, uh, by Augustine's terms, and I think there's something here with this, that we we are necessarily thinking about what our experience is. Uh, this morning before, you know, we were talking about all kinds of things, uh, and and things that stay with us because they are so moving or so troubling or so microcosmically indicative of something major that human beings do. Um, our, our direct experience we don't have direct experience of everything we have indirect experience of many things and so even indirect experience can be rendered into a direct experience how i respond to something that's going on half halfway around the planet i didn't experience it but i did experience an image of it i did experience a rendering of, of, of the text of it and that makes me think about the experience that i have closer to home mm.
0: yeah we talked that about that a little bit last week in the episode about the past how we have access to things that have happened or that are happening um indirectly in a lot of ways and we've talked about this in the past we right have. a priori versus, versus a posteriori you know and then the differences and in, in the ways we come to know things and and what they what they mean and um It's funny because during that conversation that you're referencing, um, I had a similar experience on a completely different scale. You were talking about how your granddaughter yesterday, so we're in Western New York, right? One of the coldest places in the country. Normally this time of year, the weather is very bad. We have a lot of (laughs) snow and it's very cold and we will next week. Um, But yesterday it was 60 degrees and sunny, right? And so every once in a while it happens and- Those days are always my favorite days. I'm not sure why, if it keys some memory from my past or something, but to be, to have the sunshine out and the wind blowing, but have it still be cool, right? It's Mm -hmm. still kind of cool bordering on cold outside. You know, I was at work and, um, I was helping a guy, he was driving a, a forklift to pick up some, some crates and I was sort of guiding him on the ground. So while he was taking this crate over to put it in a separate spot, I had a couple moments and the sun was shining and the white clouds were moving through the air and the wind was blowing my hair and a train was going down the tracks and just took a deep breath of this cool air. And all of a sudden that the present moment there had so much significance and you couldn't point out why it was. But it was different from other present moments I experienced, right? And yes. I think that that's part of what's tied up in what, what Augustine, Augustine there was the saying. You were talking
1: about a sensual experience. Yeah. Your senses were full on taking it in.
0: There was a there was a heightened yeah. um, sense of direct experience as opposed to um, even here, right? We're deeply engaged in a conversation. And so we're having a lot of direct experience with Thoughts and language, and, and, you know, other knowledge that we have. But we're oblivious to other given things around us that are happening in the room. Um, you know, if I stop and listen, I go, okay, I can, I can hear the, I can actually hear the computer fan running. Mm-hmm. I can actually hear my wife padding on the treadmill downstairs. Well, I can but in the, the paper conversation, in
1: my lap. Yeah. Right?
0: But in the conversation, right, you lose track of those things. There's something about that experience yesterday being outside where you felt, All of a sudden, I felt like I had a direct experience of everything that was happening in
1: that moment, right? And I think, well, this is important. This is important first because, as in our last talk on the present, we 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 talk about spiritual traditions or or um, ways of enhancing one's awareness. You had one of those, but you mentioned my granddaughter, and I, and, and the same thing comes out of preschool. Uh, hands me her jacket. I said, "Are you sure you're going to be warm enough?" I'm fine, Grandma. I like the <laughs> air. Uh, hands me her mittens. Hands me her backpack, <laughs> and then shakes her hair and and asks me to take a rubber band that was holding some part of it. She shakes her whole hair and says, "Run!" And we and and so we ran. And when we get to the end of the field, she she said, "I love the air today. The air smells." Like fresh and, and spring and things. And that was a five-year-old articulating, right? But it's what you were just saying. Yeah, yeah. Things. An awareness of lots. And and, we, and a book that we'll talk about later, but one of the... You and I read so many different things and suggest things to each other, and, and I'm, I'm trying to remember which book this came out of this week. <laughs> But there is, um, there may have been an article in the New York Review of Books, but the point is that our perception, our visual perception is so acutely small that we hold our thumb out in, in front of us and essentially the width of our thumb is where we are visually acute and everything around us is just vague. The whole world is just—we see such a little part of it, and and we have. You remember reading this, yeah? And we have, we have like four, something like four uh, visual receptors. There are plants that have twenty-seven,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we think about all those different ways that animals, that people, we're able to, people are able to do a, a video with filters and so on how an animal or how an insect may see the world and it's not the world that we're seeing no and so so we get back to this this open to the perception and, to the, and to the sensual of uh, experience of it it's a direct experience it's not the direct experience it's a direct experience yeah yeah
0: and that's Im- that's important and that's that's like we said we we talked about last time you know um sort of some of the Buddhist traditions and things about, about present moments and awareness. Uh, was there any other theological traditions you wanted to touch on before we moved on or? No. Okay. <laughs> so how does our experience of the present moment affect our well-being? So we've given these little vignettes of of how we experience the present moment. It, does this have any effect on us as people,
1: right? I certainly think it it does. I think that your your narrative a moment ago uh, gives ample evidence of that as as an anecdotal example. But I but I'll take it a step further. Uh, does it affect us? Is what you're asking? Mm-hmm. And I think that it affects us if we if we recognize the moment of being integrated, which to me is and this is the thing that is coming to me this week is that, and there's all kinds of literary connections I would like to go to, but if we recognize that the the present means the, the, the possibility and the opportunity to interpret, we can interpret because we are there that. At, at whatever that distinct moment is we're talking about, we interpret the things that are coming in around us. We choose to open our senses to, we choose to pay attention, slow down, whatever terms you want to use. We can't interpret the future. Mm. And while we can interpret the past, we do not have direct experience of it. So the only thing that we have the the wondrous thing that we have is the capacity to interact with all three elements, past, present and future. The present's the only space in which we can do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, trying to study the past is sort of like looking through a photo album full of blurry photos, right? Mm-hmm. So you have some idea of what happened, but but things are a little bit blurry, right? So you're trying to interpret what some of that motion means and it, it's very difficult with the present moment right so what what you have been talking about there i think what i'm the way that i've viewed it in my journey to become more mindful right this is and this is a huge point of emphasis in psychology currently and in medicine right they're starting to try to prescribe some of these things as um you know remedies to to some psychological issues mm-hmm. what i interpret happening with mindfulness is sensitivity to change right i think that when you were talking about okay um augustine thinking of the past yeah. you know as uh, how'd you say it again? The past was. Uh,
1: the past is memory. Is, uh, the, pre- present the present is. The present of the things past is memory. The time present of things present is direct experience. So memory, direct experience, and, that and time expectation. Right? Expectation of the future. And so I think that
0: if people who are not mindful, right, I think what happens is a lot of your cognitive processing gets caught up in memory or in expectation. And very little of what you're doing is given to direct experience. And what is direct experience, right? I think that it's noticing change. And what I've discovered is that as I've become more mindful, I've become more sensitive to the change that's happening in the moment, right? To the point where, you know, I think we talked about it on the the episode last week, right? Some songs that have been my favorite songs for two decades, right? You start to they start to go into the background. All of a sudden you start to hear them as if it's the first time you heard them because you're paying more attention to all of the nuance in the mm-hmm. thing. And and so, yeah, direct experience, right? This this idea of and how does that affect our well-being? Well, there's a lot of science to show that. It reduces your your stress levels, right? It's good for your heart. It's good for your cognitive processes. It reduces cortisol, which is a helpful hormone in the short term, but in the long term has a lot of catastrophic effects on the body. It's, you know, so it's physically and and psychologically Mm -hmm. beneficial to be present. Um, and that experience of presence, of being present. In my estimation is is being sensitive to the change that's happening in your direct experience i
1: i couldn't agree more <coughs> and i take it a step further and say that we remove it from you just removed it in the way you described it from a passive to an active thing now, there, many folks think of mindfulness as being passive but it's really quite the opposite It's being extraordinarily uh, aware, which means you have to make yourself mm. extraordinarily aware, and that's when it, we when we go back to the in, interpretive. There, there's there's a a, a, a short story. Uh, uh, it's a, it's it's actually a review. Of 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 not stories but history. It's a review of of it's called the common common phantoms in American history of psychic science. And the review is of, of this book, common phantoms, about places that people have told stories about in order to try to own those places. And and the reviewer uh, quotes the writer saying, controlling the past. And the story of origins is essential to controlling the future. I'm putting that out there because mindfulness is not controlling. Mindfulness is 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 launching and controlling or releasing your senses to go gather. Yeah, <laughs> gather yeah. and pull on. It's not trying to control the environment. It is being ultra-aware of the environment. But I think that in that, so it's a vastly different thing. But there are people who think, know the past, you're going to run the future. It's all about the present being the place where you can control things. Yeah, uh, and, and that's not what mindfulness is. But there's still that that interpret interpretive element. Margaret Atwood, in, in one of her essays, says the reader will judge the characters because the reader will interpret. We all interpret every day. We most interpret. Not only language, but a whole environment in which this means that. And this is what started yeah, into, so we're on a very similar path here. We're not being passively, oh, there's a train. Oh, there's a that's not passive. that's active. Oh, I notice a train. Oh no How is that train affecting me? Does that train bring back memories of something else that renews me? Does it cause me to think of a question that may take me somewhere else. What does that train mean? That's being that's taking a step from mindfulness into what you gathered.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's um you know it's interesting because when you're engaged in it, right? I think that you hit it right on the head there, right? You're not trying the the main benefit of mindfulness isn't just noticing everything. But it's also stripping away the filter of your own experience, right? And so you're you're trying not to just notice things, but to notice them as they are rather than as you see them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that leads you to to new insights about things. You know, I, when I saw the train yesterday. The biggest thing that I noticed about the train was the graffiti on the side, mm-hmm. right? You see all of these colorful mm-hmm. images and, and, and many of the, many of the letters and, and the things that are painted, right, are so, they have this bubbly style, right, as if they're inflated. And so, they take up so much space that you really have to pay attention to in order to interpret what the image or what the letters are that are being spelled out and even disassociating them from the words or from the things that they saw and just looking at the colors and the shapes, right? And and yeah, it's hard. You know,
1: yeah, right. And you are engaged, actively engaged in, a, in an interpretive, <coughs> excuse me, an interpretive process wherein you're appreciating or contemplating what those shapes or those letters might be doing to you and not uh, and you're aware of them in the, as of themselves but with the addition of the speed by which the train goes by uh, I know it's got a train by my house multiple times every day and I love it and you see these and they're and all graffiti is not the same there are distinct mm-hmm. styles you begin to notice oh there's a wonder where that car came from which part of the country did that get mm-hmm. uh, but it's this well Lee Smolin. we talked about Lee Smolin a little uh, last week, a uh, physics, a physicist writes about time, and and Smolin says, uh, having begun my life in science searching for the equation beyond time, I now believe that the deepest secret of the universe is that its essence rests in how it unfolds moment by moment. Hmm. Which is- and sometimes we just we race over these things. So let's think about the word "unfold." It's really hard to unfold the train going by at sixty miles an hour, but maybe not. But what what happens when we unfold something?
0: It expands, mm-hmm. and it comes from a place
1: of more density into less density. Yeah, it expands and opens. And mm. there may be things inside what's unfolding that we hadn't noticed. And and I think that happens as we reflect back on the whoosh of, of the train. It's not that we can slow it down in our minds necessarily, but there's something of that that, that allows us to.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, and it's a hard thing to explain to people who don't engage in meditative practices. right? It but I, I was talking with a friend of mine, explaining to him um some of what i do and you know talking about how yeah well yeah but if you are trying it's about emptying your mind right no it's not about emptying your mind it's about it's about trying not to think and and letting things let you know just being in the moment yeah but then if a thought occurs and, and you try not to think it aren't isn't that thinking a thought I go, yeah, that is, and you try not to do that. Like <laughs> your your thoughts have to be, you know. Dogen right said that the thoughts are are the secretions of the mind. Right, you can't, you don't want to get rid of thoughts. You can never right. get rid of thoughts. That's what your brain does. It's what it's supposed to do. It's what you want it to do. Otherwise, you're dead. Right. But what you want not to happen is for those thoughts to become something that you're ruminating on, right? You're not a cow with four stomachs, right? You, <laughs> you want to let them just pass through, right? You, right. They're, they're clouds in the sky and you let them pass by. You don't let the thought control you. Yep. And when you don't let the thought control you, um, you know, in a meditative moment, there's so few things to distract you physically and that your mind starts to, to throw things at you. And if you can let those things pass by, then in your everyday life, things that you're interacting with, you begin to suddenly integrate that so that things that pri- previously had a meaning or had an, a color or a, a tint or a, you know something that was going with them, you see that drop away just momentarily. And you, for a moment, you see things as they are and you're allowed to make a decision in the present. That you wouldn't have been able to make otherwise with the past bringing along everything that comes with it and giving it false meaning because of how you've interpreted
1: it before. This is where the well-being comes in. That's One of the reasons I didn't want to try to go into more theological stuff because this is beyond theology or this is this this really uh, interesting fusion of spirituality. Neuroscience uh, that that doesn't need to be pigeonholed in order to be uh, uh, appreciated. There's, there's a lot of implications there.
0: Yeah, all right, so we've talked a little bit about qualitative um, qualitativeness of the present moment, which we we didn't touch a whole lot on the, in the previous oh. episode on the present. So now we are going to talk about the abstract a little bit. So has anyone been able to quantitatively Define the present moment.
1: <sighs> Lots of attempts, but to me, it's not. They they aren't successful. <clears throat> so I can say, well, there are many people, and you can name some of them. I can name some of them. But many, many people try to do something that we mentioned last week. It comes back the back to the. You can't really the paradox Zeno's paradox you can't really the turtle can't get moving hmm. right well let's do this discrete amount of time no let's let's cut that in half then let's cut that in half then let's cut that in half. all the micro measures for sporting events yeah. strike me back when i went old guy back when i was a kid <laughs> they they weren't measuring a lot of the speed of the baseball but then we measure the speed of the baseball but now we can measure the speed of the baseball down to point dot 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 and and I think okay so are people competing at the hundredth or the thousandth of a uh, second well they always were but we weren't worried about that but now we can measure it and therefore it becomes an adequate measure what if if somebody's is running a race and they come so you have to use a camera close on to see whose chest hits the, the, the strip first. But they're really so close, they might as well have been called a tie. But it doesn't allow it to be a tie anymore because there's just like this micrometer's measure worth of difference between the tape on this chest and the tape on this chest. The, the reason I'm going into that is I think that that's, that is a, a trap.
0: Mm.
1: It's an interesting trap. And it's certainly uh, our measuring capacities have enormous benefits to us technologically and, and, and in production and, and so on. But I, I don't think it's useful when, uh, when we're talking about human ability. Because if we're really trying to aim to be somebody who's competing and we talked about competition, can I feel good about the fact that I bested somebody because I, I arrived up? hundredths of a second before that person did. Does that really mean that I'm better? Uh, I, I think that can lead down the wrong path.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I remember um, my dad, you know, ran track in college and he had the Guinness Book World Records come out the time for the 100-meter 100, 100 dash. And he ran it and he said, yeah, you know, but I was, I was a tenth of a second short. And I go, wow, he goes, no, no, he's like, you don't get it. That's really, really short of the world record. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a tenth of a second is really, really short, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and we talked about that last week, you know, um, the, the interesting issues that the measurement of time brings up and then some of the um, benefits and some of the, the detrimental aspects of, of measuring time what i think is interesting about it right is so we we talked about white holes and about carlo rovelli's yeah. um, theories of loop quantum gravity right so in that theory time, you know space is has discrete um discrete amounts of space right mm-hmm. it's digital you 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 can't have things that are arbitrarily small you come to a point and space has a granular texture well, space and time are the same thing, right? Then you that would indicate that time has discrete moments. And so if we look at the science we currently have, right, if you divide the Planck length by the speed of light, you get Planck time, which is the smallest measure of time possible. You're taking the fastest thing in the universe and you're dividing it into the smallest piece of space that you can get, and you're saying that's the shortest amount of time that c- you can possibly measure under our current physics. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is just a fluke of mathematics? Or do you think that time actually does have discrete granular
1: pieces to it? <sighs> to answer that, I have to point to a, <clears throat> there's a show called Radio Lab on NPR. I was going to send you the link this week. I didn't get to it yet, but I will. And I listened to a piece this week called Zero World." There's a. Rare, I won't take long with this, but it's a, it's it's a fascinating look at mathematics. A, a particular person in mathematics now, but it's not the first time it's been thought. But we cannot. We think. We're, we're told there is a certain door you keep close, you cannot divide by zero. Hmm. And this was an exploration of well, what, what happens if you, you go through that door? And this mathematician is talking about going through that door um, and, and did some exp- experiments, for instance, with with calculators and so on. And when you try, uh, it depends on the machine you use, but when you try uh, to divide a number by zero, the calculator won't stop. It just keeps running and running and running. Of, I didn't try it on my phone because I didn't want to frame my phone, but I'm listening to this, and I'm listening to other people talk about it, other mathematicians talk about it. What it essentially means is, the implication of this is, the zero equals everything.
0: Hmm.
1: Zero is one, zero is two, zero is three, zero is four. So the whole universe is zero. And this mathematician said, I I realized this has bothered me for 40 years. And I think I'm at the place now where we're going, I'm, I'm going through this door and I'm going to go to the desert with a tent and just pay attention to the things that I sit and pay attention to because everything is one. And then he goes back to spiritual traditions. That the, the, the two are one, and 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 there are no, there's another mathematician saying, "Well, yeah, you can do that, but I'll, but that's just so banal because it's well, okay. So the whole universe is one thing. Well, that's not very interesting. But Plato thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's- and, and so to answer, so your question was, I, I went off on a tangent, but it really wasn't. Yeah. So Planck time. Yeah. Right can you, can you it, are there discrete moments of time there plank time would tell us that there are discrete moments of time but i think that there are those who would also say that that's that can be useful in theory but it's a distraction from deeper humanity
0: yeah i think that I I like that, and I hope you really send me that link. because I I was Zero
1: is interesting.
0: Yeah, and this can be demonstrated um, through um, examples of infinity, right? Because essentially they're the same thing.
1: Yeah, they were talking about that. uh,
0: Zero to one, right? You think, okay, well, what's the difference between zero and one? It's one. Well, but not if you start using fractions, right? Because then you can have a tenth. And so if you have a tenth, now there's ten things inside of one. And if you go to a well, now you have a hundred things, 0.01, 0.02, right? Well, there's no limit to the number of times you can split up the number one. You can keep going decimal places, the thousands, uh, the millions, and, that's and on means. and on and on. So essentially, and that's what dividing by zero sort of ends up being in a way, right? Yeah. You, you come to the conclusion, again, in a very Buddhist way, <laughs> that everything is at once nothing, and one thing, right? And zero and one is all there is, and zero and one are also sort of in infinite, right? You can't so have I think an infinity we,
1: plus one.
0: Right, yeah. Even kids
1: say that, I like to infinity, yeah. I like you infinity plus one. It means nothing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I think if we take that to our question of loop quantum gravity and discrete moments of time, yeah. I think that's sort of the practical implications are, right? If If loop quantum gravity were to represent the way things are. And there were discrete moments of time, Planck time. I think that if you got down to that moment, the you'd have a frozen universe, right? The the wave, right, where we talked about free energy, right? Mm -hmm. And this release of heat, it'd be as if you saw a wave in the ocean and it just stopped, right? And in that time,
1: There is no time. So you are in, and no time is an indigenous aboriginal concept in Australia. Fascinating. The dream time, Mm. no time, right? Okay. So So it has meaning, but we don't really experience it directly. So we're experiencing it as a thought experiment. We're experiencing that thought experiment, and that surely does something to the way we look at things. Yeah, the, the picturing that wave slowing down and, and then just stopping. I think that's the value of it. There, there's a, a short story, a science fiction short story. I read this week called uh, "The <clears throat> The Truth of Fact," and it's by Ted Chang. And one of the characters is, uh, he's in a culture that's being studied by an anthropologist and a priest. (laughs) And he's explaining what he's learning about writing, because it's a non-writing culture, it's an oral culture. And the young character is learning writing says, Our language has two words for what in your language is called true. There is what's right, and there's what's precise. And I had to write that down for, for us today because that's what you're talking about with Planck. Well, there's what's precise. But is it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can
0: you ever freeze the wave, right? Is that even a thing that, that exists? Yeah. And it raises. there's an interesting question that raises off it, right? Which is, why does everything seem to experience the present moment in synchrony? Right? Because we think about this. And so, present moment, right? We, we look through a telescope, we see back in time. Yeah, we see yeah, something as it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. But th- that is in the past, right? If I were to look at a telescope or somebody, you know, looking through a telescope a billion light years away from us, if they see us having this conversation, well, you and I are long dead. We're gone, right? It is not our present. They mm. might see us mm-hmm. moving, but we we are no longer… There. So the present moment seems to be synchronous across space and time, but yet
1: there's not a really good reason why it should be, is there? No. I don't think so as a as a lay person. I, I don't I, I and Well, we're back to Ravelli. Ravelli's uh Ravelli says, we are stories contained within the 20 complicated centimeters behind our eyes. Hmm. That's in the order of time. One of those other books we love. What causes us to suffer is not in the past or in the future. It is here, now, in our memory, in our expectations. We long for timelessness. We endure the passing of time. We suffer time. Time is suffering.
0: I like that he used memory and expectations, right? Because
1: yeah. we're going, knows Augustine, and, right. so, and it, it's clear he's a very literate man, going to Dante and everything in the other book. So, which is kind of fun. We're pulling so much together with this. Uh, so, so 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 no time. So the wave that freezes, the 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 um, the thing that's precise. Uh, is it right because does it relieve us of any suffering hmm. there's another way of looking at it does it uh, we talked about last week of a character saying i need my pain right I, I not not that i want to be in constant pain but i need the learning that has come from and i, I can't be fully human if i don't feel
0: hmm.
1: and flunk time might not allow us to feel So it may be very precise, but it may not necessarily be right. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: so this is really interesting, right? Because we, we mentioned how space and time, right? Are made of the same fabric. And I think this is going to lead into a new episode, uh, an interesting episode down the line, right? Because there are now a a sizable group of physic, physicists that are saying that that paradigm is doomed, that it's not going to hold up. Mm. Space and time are going to have to be separated at some point. And I think that. This might be the crux of that issue, right? If space and time were one fabric, then we know you can be in two different spaces at one time, right? If, if we look, you know, the people a billion light years away from us, we know that, that they are separate from us in, in space. <coughs> but yet, if they look at us in time, they'll see us in our, you know, they'll see us in the past, a billion years in the past. The present remains the same across time, despite the fact that space and time are of the same fabric.
1: It's incongruous. That's that's exactly it, because I I know when people talk about this, it's as if somehow all that light is coming from way back there, where it all happened, but space is equal in every direction. (laughs) So the light from us is, is going there. If they are still alive, they'll see us now. How many billion years later? <laughs> yeah, it, it works both
0: ways. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting thought. So how how do we reconcile this with the, the theory of special relativity? Right. So Einstein talked about the present as as a hyperplane, right? Yes. This, you know, it, why does it seem that? And he was also very
1: vocal about time being a stubborn illusion right He was that I, I think that's probably the most the most useful thing uh, 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 is is the idea of, of, of Einstein uh, being uh, uh, back to that word an eternalist that it's all an illusion so so your question is is how do we how do we
0: reconcile that with our experience? I suppose I don't think,
1: that we need to. <laughs> How's that for wishy-washy? But I—I I don't mean it to be, because I'm not a practicing physicist that's looking for the unification of everything. Uh, I uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is in mind right now. I can have two competing thoughts in my mind at the same time, <laughs> and and. And they're both fascinating. Uh, what's important to us immediately is what we experience. That's probably one of the hallmarks of being human, right? Well, if we experience looking at a star that no longer exists, potentially, through a telescope, that has, can have a direct effect on what we think about our little moment in space and time i find it not frightening but reassuring (laughs) not everybody would find it that way i I find it as as, as well okay so this is precious but it's also a froth in the in the universe and What makes it precious is whatever the the meaning that I have taken from the direct experience that I'm having that makes it so. And part of the direct experience I'm having can be helped through interpreting things from the past, including a vision of the star. And I'm not so sure it's so helped by expecting the future. Usually expectations of the future are generally grim, at least in our own culture these, these days. We don't expect the things to get better because there are an awful lot of things that look like they're not going to be. So I don't think, well, we can't ex- put it a different way, trying to put it in what I was talking about before. We can be in three places at once, not just two, but three, uh, in a sense. Let's say we read a science fiction book or story about time travel. We are... Entering into the viewpoint of a narrative viewpoint of a character who never lived, (laughs) because it's a fictional character, but is in, let's say, is in the early 1900s. We're not, so we're back in the past. That character is looking to travel to a future. In some books, the future was like 1997. Okay, so traveling to a future, which is still our past, but for the duration of the read, the suspension of our disbelief, we are in the space of that character. We pull back and we're in that interpretive space of the present. What am I figuring out about this writer? With his philosophy, their, their thinking through that character. What is that, that thing, that artifact from the past, telling me about my experience now and the future hmm. the potential of the future so this is why literature is so one of the many reasons art is so vastly important because it can take us out it can make us very aware and and uh, mindful at the same time that it crosses time yeah
0: yeah i and i think that we see that play out there's something deep There, right? And I don't know whether language and literature was the origination of it in the human animal or if it was something that was present there that is manifested through um, those things, but Mm -hmm. even simple things, right? Like let's say you're in a room and you can't leave for whatever reason. You're working or whatever. And you see a bug on the wall and he walks around the wall. You know, your initial reaction might be uh, disgust. Or you know, mild fear, or whatever it may be, you, you, whatever visceral reaction you have to seeing a bug. But for, in my case, right after a few minutes, all of a sudden you start to form a connection with this bug. Right, this bug has a story. Right, this bug has something that's going on. There's some meaning ascribed to. It. Yes. And beyond that, you start to imagine. Well, what would it be like to be the bug? Right. <laughs> and you, you know, Franz Kafka had had a story about this, and you know, you yeah, start,
1: metamorphosis.
0: Yeah, you start. You know, you you travel. Through different spaces and times and stories and uh, your whole reality can shift inside of this one tiny stimuli, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that that, that that's important in terms of being an insight into how we sort of think about time from our viewpoint. Because
1: when we're thinking with language, and we're thinking there, there's thinking with mathematics but that in itself is arguably a kind of language but we this is where uh, Sabine Hassenfelder comes in uh, she one of the things she wrote in her book lost in math how beauty leads physics astray and I, I I'm pointedly saying that title because if I've if got a choice between physics and beauty I'm taking beauty art wins man I just uh, but but she says, there are other reasons we use math and physics. Besides keeping us honest, math is also the most economical and unambiguous terminology that we know of. Language is malleable. It depends on context and interpretation, but math doesn't care about culture or history. If a thousand people read a book, they read a different th- a book a thousand different ways. But if a thousand people read an equation, they read the same equation. Hmm. Okay, fine. So there's, back to what's precise and what is true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. Both are true. Right. But we can live with both, but we probably prefer one over the other at any given moment, and it may not be the same. Yeah. So if space-time is one discreetly digital
0: fabric, hmm. is it a fundamental or emergent property of the universe?
1: <laughs> oh, man. You just, you just. What you stir your tea and go, hmm. <laughs> I love it. You always did this. You did this in the classroom. You know, all right, so I'm going back to the unfolding For me, hmm. for me. I'm not speaking for a- anybody else except using the metaphors that are are offered. Uh, if space and time unfold as the universe progresses, whatever, then it's emergent. Uh, and, and even if we go back to the idea of the Big Bang, which we've talked about many times, okay, so nothing then an entire universe in the space of microseconds, right? <laughs> there it is. Well, then space and time were emergent. And they were emergent because things... Uh, the, uh, the, the universe then was not the universe now. Now, Smolin would say that there's nothing outside the universe. There are mm-hmm. No multiverses. It's just everything. Let's let's go for a minute that it's just the one universe. Just <laughs> <laughs> just one infinity. <laughs> Thank you very much. And but it's changing. If the universe changes, some of the physical laws have emerged that we recognize now in our little moment of humanity as a law. It may not be a law. It may not continue to be a law. And so, emergent, how about you? What do you
0: think? Yeah, I think that uh, you bring up a really good point, And I think that it's, it's perspectival in nature, right? Because I think that when physicists use the term fundamental property, usually what they're indicating is that the universe could not exist without this thing. It was present at the beginning. And that's an interesting thought, right? Could you have a universe where there was neither space nor time? Right? <laughs> but I think that the way that you described it is viscerally more um motivating, which is that well, if we can identify the origin of the universe as taking place at a discrete moment in space and time. Mm um then it's emergent right it's it's constantly emerging it's something that is that is constantly being made so in that way the views of what's emergent and what is fundamental are not necessarily any different from one another right yeah and but i i think think going back to that first that first one is kind of an interesting thought experiment, right? Can you have a universe without space? Oh, that's very time? <laughs> What would that look like? You know, but it, how uh, could and, it look and, like and, anything? Right. And it, it, but it takes me back to you, the, the aboriginal, right? Mm-hmm. What, what you mentioned there. And you think about dreams. And I know that you've yeah. had dreams as I have where um, you know, I'll fall asleep and, and my watch monitor will tell me exactly how much time I was in REM sleep, <sighs> right? Mm. And in the space of 10 minutes, I've experienced weeks of time. Yes, in a space that does not exist, right? Yep. So, okay, you can argue that the space is the neurons in my brain, and that the time is real. It's just distorted through, you know, whatever processes are taking place in the timekeeping, you know, pineal gland in my brain. Or but my it has brain. happened,
1: right? Or did? But it did. <laughs> it happened as an experience. We we talked about this long ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah So I'm going with the argument that, yeah, you experienced it. I experienced it. I have had dreams in which I've spent entire days working through student papers written in a language that I don't recognize and realizing that I'm trying to learn that language to do the papers. I wake up exhausted. (laughs) But lots of time has passed in the dream, and, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, It's really bananas, is the end of <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah, w- what does emergent and what does fundamental mean in terms of how space, time, you know, um,
1: scaffolds are they, our what, reality? What do they have you know? to do with present, right? Well, that's the whole thing. What's this emergent universe have to do with? Yeah. Now. And we can't speak for everybody. We can sometimes we can't speak for ourselves. <laughs> well, it means this to me now, but now yeah, that was five minutes ago. Now it means this to me. And that doesn't that doesn't undermine what it did mean. It's as you scaffold. I think the present is is an interesting process and very rapidly so If I squash all this together. Experiencing a moment means unfolding, looking at, experiencing, thinking about, interpreting, and then we fold it back up, Hmm. and we we put it away, and we take off the next blanket. (laughs) And then when we go to
0: unfold that blanket again, it's different than it was. It's more in a moment. Yeah. So, is the present moment just a byproduct of consciousness, do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I do. I think this is very human oriented. I don't think that now. Uh, I love Sabine Hasselvelder stuff. So <laughs> tell me, I'm full bunk. <laughs> She's probably be right, but <laughs> I, an alien species that ha- doesn't have any of our reference points, except the elements that probably make them up the same as us. Um, wouldn't experience time in the same way that we do. Unless time is totally uh, is, is universal and only measured in the same kind of ways. If, if Planck is Planck is Planck, even if they don't say Planck or quantum in whatever language they might have. But I don't I don't see how that can be. Just, just as we don't see the the, the world with our limited eyes, the way a plant photo receives the world, the way that that an animal photo receives the world. I don't visually, if we see different things, we're seeing different parts of reality, then we can't claim that it would be anything other than...
0: Yeah, and I I think this is almost bordering on being objective now. Um, just with the studies I've done in, in psychology, what you realize is that your perceptual systems, um, y- even you as a singular creature have different perceptions of the present, right? Mm-hmm. And they do experiments with this all the time. They'll flash um, what subliminal messages, right? In a certain number of milliseconds um, that you cannot be aware of. Now that That thing was, did happen in a present, in a moment in time, but you were unaware of it. But some part of your brain was aware of it. So they say it's subliminal because you're not aware, but that's very, a very narrow interpretation, right? When they say you're not aware, what they mean is that consciously your prefrontal cortex, the central executive, didn't get the information in order for you to know what happened. But there are some part of your brain is aware because when they conduct the experiments, you will reference the thing that you did not come into your awareness. You saw it, but it didn't come into your awareness. Your ears, right? You have two ears. So if I turn to my left and you're only speaking into my right ear, the sound waves that you're speaking that are now reaching my left ear arrive at a different time. But my brain pulls some funny equations in order to make it seem as if I'm hearing it at the same time. So there's not this weird echo, there's no delay, nothing like that. And if you have one ear, there's still an attempt to adjust. Yeah. And and same thing with grasping and, and, you know, proprioceptive receptors, right? Your whole body is constantly performing incredibly complex actions in order to Synchronize your experience of what time is, and that is not a reflection of reality.: No,
1: it is an interpretation. The body what you just described is a hammering on this. I know I am, but the, but the body, as, as you've just described it, is compensating for things in order to uh, syncretize, uh, synthesize a, a human interpretation. Mm. one human interpretation of of the world that which is which is why i think that my my current definition of the present is the interpretive space hmm. yeah i can't interpret in the past i can have an experience through literature of, of, of yes. but i can't interpret in the past i can only interpret now i can't interpret in the future So whatever the now is, the present is that capacity. I think that's a good
0: one, yeah. Because when you're reflecting on the past, you are in some way interpreting the past, right? There's no true reflection on what happened as we talked about last week. There's always a coloring that's happening as you interpret it in the present. And the, the same with the future, right? Your expectations of the future are your interpretation of how the change that's happening in your direct experience is going to be affected by things that are currently happening.
1: But there's a a qualification, your interpretation must be yours based on everything that you're taking in. It can't be, it can't be passively saying, oh, well, somebody else says this, I accepted and there's, I don't have any thoughts about this. No, that's not Mm -hmm. interpretation, it needs to be accurate.
0: yeah so this is a fun one and then next week we'll tie it up with the future and then um i think that following pretty closely afterwards we're going to have some interesting uh interesting discussions that will will bring some of these concepts back around yes. so until next time keep going.